where else could you go and see a $10 bill pasted to the bulletin board and nobody pick it up? (laughs) Found in laundry. I had my laundry done. And even though it was just underwear, maybe... It says something. It says something about the quality of us, doesn't it? It says something about the integrity. It says something about the way we hold the world. I just, I think it's, there's, a, there's kind of a precious waving that that $10 bill gives us as we pass. <laughs> I want to uh, speak tonight about the evolution of insight practice. And um, I'm doing this very deliberately at the end of the retreat so that people won't start judging their practice in terms of that evolutionary cycle. And it's not meant at all to be thought of as a progression of I'm here and I've got to get somewhere else. It's more, um, well, it's, it's a quieting. It's a quieting. This evolution follows a quieting, a phase of quietude. Now, some, some uh, evolutionary cycles um, in um, spiritual practice have a definite progression. And in fact, uh, the progression of insight is a progression from one experience to another. And some have a, a deepening of understanding, like the ox herding pictures in Zen, where uh, different facets of that of those pictures represent a different relationships to stillness, what we've been talking about on this particular retreat. But, but I want to look at how the practice itself, how, we, uh, how the practice starts speaking to us differently, dependent upon our different levels of quietude. And actually, if you look at and listen to these different phases, you'll find that through the course of this retreat, you quite possibly had every one of those phases. And if you look at the, where you are in terms of your um, life with the practice, perhaps you can resonate with one of those phases predominantly. It's not to get over that phase in order to get to the next phase. It's to quiet to settle into that face, to relax into that face, and then there's another floor that you fall onto. So that's very important before I start talking about this because I am not someone who speaks lightly about phases of practice because it catches everyone's ear, uh, especially in this culture when we have so much ambition uh, in striving towards that end. But I think it's helpful in getting a sense of of um, of uh, the landscape of the practice, what the because you know, you know in the beginning you can feel like is this it? Is there anything else here? I mean, what is what go what what is this all about? Am I just sitting here um, ruminating on how difficult? It, is there something else going that's going to show itself here? You know, um, 
And I think it's very helpful, and also I think it's helpful is to where we focus our efforts when we are in a particular phase, because very easily those phases can have a component of ignorance that captures um, our efforts in a completely opposite direction than where we should be applying them. So I'm hoping that as we, as I go through these different phases, you'll perhaps hear uh, a tone of correction uh, so that we can uh, deepen and quiet and, um, and come to um, uh, yet a stiller point within us. You see, um, sort of as a preliminary understanding, I think we all have to understand that this practice or any practice, spirituality is about understanding Understanding, self-understanding, understanding our mind. It's not about doing something with it. It's about the understanding of it. And when you're trying to understand something, what is required? Well, we have to be quiet. Or we're never going to uh, create the inward environment to be able to understand. And we can't opinionate. We can't move into a subject with our preset judgment of how this thing is going to turn out, or we'll never be available to what it really is. So if you let the word understanding take you in to what it means in order to understand, you'll see what, why we emphasize and stress um, the different uh, practice uh, verbs that we do, like relaxing, allowing, etc. So what's the first phase? <clears throat> I call it inflated enthusiasm. <laughs> and the stage one, phase one, not stage one, phase one is inflated enthusiasm. Uh, I particularly uh, appreciate uh, to see people when they first arrive. And the, um, they've offered an extended effort to get here. They've uh, gone through a lot of painstaking travel often. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of excitement about arriving and settling into the room and the initial social interactions and the um, kind of like opening baseball season. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> And uh, uh, the um, and and there's often a heightened uh, expectation of what uh, this practice is going where this weekend is going to happen. And you know it happens very subtly to the more experienced practitioner as well as to the beginner. Uh, we often carry a, an idea or remembrance of the previous retreat, and we enter this retreat with an expectation of even more profound or further advanced insight or whatever, however we hold it. But it's often accompanies that initial landing, that initial thing, and the expectation that we, that we, um, that we have with the practice. The emphasis on this stage is on the mechanics of the practice and making the mechanics so that we can settle down, get over these first couple of days, and settle into get it going, you know. So, and we have to get the whole all the gear shifts working right. We have to get our samadhi up to, you know. We gotta 
and we got a quiet. We, you know, we got all these projects that were going on. <laughs> and we often might have specific ideas of how this whole thing is going to turn out for us. And somebody told us of something that happened to them on a retreat, and we have an idea that that's what meditation is about. And so we come in with this idea that meditation is going to lead to the same product that we perceived in this other person. And so when we have that kind of orientation to the meditation uh, focus, we, we can miss the forest for the trees. We don't see the beauty of the landscape as it develops because we're looking for just that one experience to validate our practice. And that can be um, very, very difficult because there's so much pressure at this time on the practice to work, to perform. It's unrealistic. Putting tremendous weight on this thing, this thing called meditation and the mechanics thereof. And changes do occur. It's not as if uh, those changes don't occur, but uh, in comparison to some of the deeper qualities of change, these are often superficial changes. We find ourselves uh, settling in a little more. We find ourselves a little quieter. We find ourselves oriented in space and time to where we actually are rather than constantly fighting that orientation. And uh, somehow, through it all, there is a general movement towards an alignment with something. But the expectations that aren't being met are often more discouraging to us than what the changes that are being met. And at this point, the whole thing is very precariously purged because our old habits are ready to kick in and we're ready to undermine whatever changes might be there with our very strong sense of self-doubt and collapse the whole tent and just leave... Uh, the premise entirely, uh, and th- which is why most of us in that first day or so go through this inward packing of our bags, and we think, my God, what, what, how did I ever get here, and how can I escape without being seen? <laughs> and and it, it, is it possible to get my money back? You know, is this is a trap. This is a trap, me in this thing. This is a trap. I'm gonna... <laughs> in this, uh, this practice, uh, the, in this phase, the, the, um, what, what needs to be stressed is, is, that, um, is the sitting itself, is the sitting and the walking, the form, the technique. Uh, and uh, just the adherence to that, just the adherence to that, just do it. And believe it or not, most of us end up staying, which is really amazing to me, as hard as it is, that you have that kind of dedication of purpose and willingness to try. In fact, it's one of the things that um, ignite my, um, my own appreciation is to see people moving through this first stage. Because nothing's being seen, really nothing of any significance. You're running totally on blind faith here. It's like, well, if he says so. <laughs> so which takes us into the second phase, the second phase. The deep, the quieting. See, okay, after sitting, walking, sitting, walking. Okay, so 
after that first um, that first outbreak of enthusiasm, and then there's this. Then I often say it's like entering a room of one-way mirrors, the reflection of which reflect inward. And you walk into the room the first day with a great deal of enthusiasm of just being in there. And then on this second phase, you actually look up and see the reflection in the mirror. And it's what I call the stage of (laughs) (laughs) self-repulsion. It's like, oh, my God. Uh, Someone once said, uh, the truth will liberate you, but you'll become miserable first. And, and it, it has that sense. When you look up and see the reflective gaze, is what the meditation is supposed to be doing, is showing our face to us, to show us what it is, that the patterns that we run on. And there's so much wiggling that goes on in that early adjustment to those images, a struggle. And uh, when I say, a quiet period, and now we're going to do metta, May I, may I be? Uh, may I have? Uh, may I be kind to myself? Ooh, oh, it's it's like the, oh, you can't let those words in, you know, because of the of the self perception of the self uh, repulsion. And it, and it, I think to a person, I don't know very many people who can bypass this phase. It's another endearing phase. But, but the, the beauty of it, the beauty of a one-way mirror is that if you get close enough to it, yes, you see the reflection, but you also see through the mirror. And so, in this phase, what we're, we're in this phase, we're not that close yet. It's just the images and the, we see our selfishness, we see our anger, we see our grief. Um, and not only that, but we, we, um, we see we, with our idealism, which is continuing through this phase, there is a, a sense of the, um, the hurt, the, the pain of caring. The pain of caring. You know the pain of caring? where the world uh, in the world becomes a little mistrustful because of how out of whack it is according to what the heart's caring says and how um, hurtful everything is in the world. And I'm supposed to live out there? Those are questions like that we hear often. Uh, how can I ever include uh, this president or that president in my heart? I'm sorry, I'm just... See, the idealism and the struggle is there, the mistrust. Uh, we had a, a Northwest Dharma, which is sort of the umbrella organization in Seattle, uh, doesn't represent any one Buddhist group. It represents all of the different uh, sanghas in the area. And a, a member of my of a Seattle Insight Sangha wanted uh, to apply for the director of that organization, and I didn't want her to do it. She was relatively young in the practice, and I knew that her idealism would come crashing down. But she insisted, and so she did. 
against my better judgment, and uh, does, to see the, uh, the, the innocence and enthusiasm when she entered that job and one year later when she uh, left it and left the practice too. And I haven't seen her since. This is not, a, this is not, this isn't small th- things. We are very vulnerable in this phase uh, for our dealism to come cracking open and to, and to fall through those cracks. And everything is a, per, a personal representation for argument. How the world is, everything represents a personal stake. We have a personal stake in everything, especially our reflection. And all we see are blemishes in this. We're filled with the invite, invitation to do, but our doing is really to address the blemishes, to wipe them out, to put... In my day, it was called Clarisel, but I'm not sure what it is <laughs> to cover over those, <laughs> those pimples that we see on the reflection. And are we work diligently to that purpose, even though the practice from day one is framed differently? It, I, we don't hear that. Because our efforts are towards eradicating ourselves. We want to crawl out of our skins. We are fighting our ordinariness which is perhaps the most, I don't know if there's another word in the English language that incites us as much as ordinariness. Ordinariness is not appropriate in this culture. <laughs> and so, uh, and what, that's what we see. We don't even see that, but we, we see, you know, we, we're almost a subspecies of that when we look at ourselves. <laughs> stay with me. If you don't stay with this talk, what are we going to do when they're practicing? <laughs> okay, so, and again, and for some, in some way that I don't understand, I can almost see it in how people sit the first time they come in. I do beginning classes in Seattle. People come in, and the beginning classes, they've never meditated before in, in this or any other setting. And they start sitting. I can almost look around and pick out the people who will go through these phases and the ones that won't. It's in their body. It's in our body. It's not what we make of it up here. It's almost genetic. It's almost cellular. And you can see if they can just stay with the body, if they can just stay in the body, with what the body knows, it's the, the certainty of itself, the homeness, the homingness, the, um, like a homing pigeon, then they'll make it through. But it's... Precarious at best. So we enter uh, stage three, phase three, phase three. And that's the stage of operation, the stage of operation. The stage of operation um, is really the stage on which most progressions are are, uh, progressive uh, uh, statements of the spiritual path are based. 
The stage of operation, it's hard to say this um, in ways that, does, that doesn't invite ambition. But there are qualities that must be nourished within us so that we can see, so that we have the capacity to see, the capacity for insight. Most of us are not born with those qualities. And the practice is meant to engender those qualities. Yet when you focus in on engendering those qualities, you lose the, the reason. You lose the view, the wise view of where meditation is to take us. You see? You see, the, that's, the, that's the paradox, one of the paradoxes that follows us throughout this thing. And yet, nevertheless, unless the mind steadies itself sufficiently, unless there's a relatively de- uh, some degree of calm, unless there's some degree of interest in your life, See, these are factors, unless there's some willingness to invite a curious response to things, these are the factors of enlightenment I'm speaking about. And those come on their own. They do not have to be aroused. They come in following the practice, just doing it with, within the context of how the instructions are given those qualities begin to nourish. And some people, they nourish very quickly, and other people, they don't. Some traditions, there are spiritual teachers that can hold energetically the space for those qualities to arise. But then in the absence of that teacher, it falls apart, and then everybody rushes back to the teacher. That is not what we're doing here. And that's why it requires a kind of self-reliance and self-independence. We are making ourselves our own teacher. Be of yourself, be, your, uh, be a light unto yourself, said the Buddha. What do you think he meant? We have to have the capacity to see, the capacity for insight. The problem when we are involved in this phase of operation, just getting the the repetition down of how to work this thing and returning again and again to the breath and being willing to have that kind of sense of patience in ourselves to do just that, there can be and often is an exertion of effort uh, in striving that accompanies that tension. And the landscape can look very dry and you can feel very brittle. You can feel like you're in a desert. The heart isn't warm. It's it's very um, uh, mechanical in, in nature. And everything, again, at this stage is, um, is very personal. And, of course, everything can be easily sidetracked. We are waiting for someone to stand up on this stage and say to us that your efforts have worthwhile, that your ambitions pay off. Let me show you how to strive for your completion. We would love nothing more than to have a spiritual path that fulfills that prescription for ourselves. But true spiritual teaching just can't do that because it is not true. And so there's a, there's a kind of way that we don't even know what we're, the, what we're running on. We don't even realize the, 
the, the, um, the energetic reason that we're even doing this practice because it's also mixed up with our worldly values. Basically, what we're trying to do for almost all is, is try to uh, scrub away those images that we constantly see on the mirrors facing us. It becomes humanistic psychology. Don't talk to me about non-self. I don't have any idea what that means. Talk to me about self-improvement. That I can get my hands on. Let my meditation be around self-improvement. That means something to me. I'll be better liked in the workplace. (laughs) And believe it or not, what happens over time is that there are moments in which we genuinely have self-caring. That's somehow, and those are tremendously inspiring moments when we can feel our heart open, when we feel this burn in the chest, when we feel the pain in the chest, when for a moment we see in grief how we've been treating ourselves. Those are all legitimate indications that the practice is beginning to work by making us quieter, by allowing us to move deeper quieter into ourselves. The faith at this point is still pretty much blind faith. There's a lot of drudgery in practice. It feels like God walking, sitting, walking. It feels like hard work, perhaps the hardest work you've ever done. Perhaps the hardest work you've ever done. So interesting, it's, I don't know what keeps us there. Again, it's uh, the mystery working itself through us, which takes us into the fourth stage, which I call the stage of insight. <clears throat> this is a, a, a precious time, was a precious time in my uh, practice, uh, I had um, spent uh, an, a long period of time with the mechanics and with self-hatred uh, and uh, really trying, uh, even though, despite the words, uh, to have a, just a glimmer of hope that I could be anything other than the um, blemished person I saw. And uh, I tried to force myself into the hardest possible environments uh, to break through uh, those images. Uh, and eventually what happened from those environments is that I, uh, I, uh, I lost the battle and I, I, the effort just broke me. I just, I broke. Uh, I couldn't do it anymore. And I, uh, and then I went to a country, Thailand, that uh, allowed me to be out in the forest. And I said when I got there, I th- I'm throwing away everything I know. And I don't care if anything comes back. But I am not going to follow someone else's prescription on this thing. I was just fed up. Just absolutely fed up. This was going to work for me or it wasn't going to work. And I wasn't going to follow any more self-damnation as my guide. And so I looked at everything. Everything I had been taught, I looked at it for, for the first time. Really? And so why, why is it that my practice has to be like this? Why, what is it that really works for this thing? 
I got serious about it. I wasn't running any longer on a prescription. And lo and behold, insight, insight poured in. And um, it wasn't... It wasn't around, see, the form all of a sudden, fell. I wasn't sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting. <laughs> I wasn't doing that. That wasn't working for me. Because that is, because I couldn't separate that out from the stress of my effort. So I had to find a different way. I, a different approach. And being out in nature and doing, uh, doing a kind of walking that was a, a, a walking of, an investigative walking for me. This is just my style. But what I'm showing you is that everything breaks down at this stage. No rules are. You make, the retreat becomes your own at this thing. There's absolutely, the form is only there to support the insight. It is not there for any other reason whatsoever. And if the insight's coming, the form, there is no adherence to the form at all. And as the insight starts to come, you begin to see what insight is, is that you're no longer looking at life through the lens of me. And when awareness sees outside of the obscurations of the story of me, you begin to gain glimpses of what reality is as things are. And that's insight. That's what comes. To the point where you can be just turn your mind to a question and the insight's there. And the joy and the wonder that comes from that. I mean, it feels almost um, ecstatic. You see where the poet, the, the, like Hafiz and Rumi and uh, Kabir the ecstatic poets, uh, that joy. And, and that was really um, th- that phase, listen, because it's a phase. Stay with me, we're still two or three phases from the end here. <laughs> but you're... you're um, oh, Everything that's now being seen in the mirror has an impersonal quality to it. No longer a personal quality. It has nothing to do with me anymore. And the confidence grows. And the faith. And the practice has now become, uh, and the qualities have been such engendered, and the practice now becomes uh, uh, as available as uh, as the as the question. Which takes us into the next phase, which is the application of insight. You see, um, up until this point, when you have been sent from a retreat, uh, for a long period of time, the final instructions were, uh, be as mindful as you can. After a 45-minute talk, essentially that's what I would get out of it. And I would go home and try to be as mindful as I can, could. But because it was always me trying to be mindful, I, the sense of I, was actually fighting the observation, the awareness. Awareness in the person don't coexist very well. The person, 
who needs to be mindful, those two don't, those, the, the, the product of mindfulness and the person who needs to be mindful, those two don't coexist very well. They fight each other. You see? It's very interesting. And you wonder why you lose it when you leave the retreat. It's because you carry back yourself into your practice. Here, in this moment, you see, many of you are very close to the phase of insight where there's an effortlessness. You're not around as much. And so there's an effortlessness in the awareness. The awareness just shines forth. It's an effortlessness because it's an inherence. It's inherent within us. As soon as we come back into shape, which is the resistance we have to life, how can awareness get through? So then we have to be, to be forceful in our moment-to-moment mindful. And then we forget, of course, because the configuration of self is the forgetting of the very thing of union, which is what where mindfulness takes us. Do you see that? It's just one of the many paradoxes of this whole thing. And so... But this phase, the application of insight, once we have the right uh, direction, the right view, that it's not about me being mindful, then what we, we become tremendously interested in our life. Why? Because we realize that all pain is self-inflicted. When we're lost in the sense of me, and the struggles therein, what the sense of me thrives on is not ta- being accountable, is blame. You are doing it to me. And therefore, without the, um, uh, the sense that this pain is self-inflicted, I have no interest in my life. I have only an interest in dispelling you from my life. So, now I'm interested in my life because I'm being totally accountable for it. Now it gets very interesting, you see, because I want to, I want to get there. I want to know this thing. Now the heart's fully, full, the heart is out there. But, and the practice is self-generating, and it has without form. This is when you become urban Buddhists. And you've infused your life with this interest, with this, uh, everything is interesting, like, well, what's going on here? And what about that record? Look at that. And you just, and you add, and because the um, availability of insight is, is um, directed according to the questions, and the questions are directed according to the source of pain, then the pain becomes the very reason for our insight to, to arise. See, misdirected, the pain is about George Bush. That's misdirected pain. The pain is about our life. Heal that, you heal George Bush. Now, if that's not an incentive, And then you see it's it's uh, you see you feel how close it is, and you can the heart can't tolerate the separation that pain um, seems to indicate seems to indicate it 
can't stand it. Just can't, I can't tolerate it. You run on top. That, whoa, look, look, whoa, like that. Right there. You understand the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And I call the fourth foundation of mindfulness inquiry, investigation, looking uh, to uncover the dharmas of our life. Where it is that we're holding, where it is that we are still blinded, to use uh, Yanai's word. And the power of the questioning uh, to infuse uh, that sense of aliveness. And it's really life, it's really aliveness coming back in for itself. That's what's really happening. Coming back to uncover itself fully. You see? What else could, ha- what else could it be? What else really could it be in the mystery of things? But life resurrecting itself. Of course there's going to be passion in that. Of course there's going to be sensitivity in that. Of course there's going to be interest in that. Because life is the embodiment of those qualities. No more theory here. No more religiosity. Rites and rituals long since passed their governance phase including the ritual of meditation. But we have yet a phase to go. We have to ask the deep and troubling questions in our life. We have to ask for there to be attention to the deep and troubling areas of our life. The, the areas like, what is death? You see? You see, when I came back after Thailand, I went right into the subject of death and dying because that was the deepest, most troubling question to me. What is death? It was my troubling question. It need not, may not be yours. And because the heart could, that's where the heart went. It went to the deepest, most profound question it could ask. That's where it went. Who am I? What am I? What is, what is looking through my eyes? What is looking through my eyes? Ask that question. What is looking through your eyes? Not what is being seen, but what makes it possible for seeing to happen. You see, what we're welcoming there is emergence. Is emergence. Is it coming back home? Now we're talking about abiding insight, which is the final phase of the practice. Abiding in, insight, where the mind drops into the heart. The mind drops into the heart. Where the dualistic perspectives have a functional purpose. I need to bang the bell. But fools no one in its ringing. 
So the mountains become mountains. And there's no referencing. There's no obscuration. There's no... Because the being... There's no watching the mind. Hmm? Why would you watch the mind when it's completely safe? We watch it because we are afraid it isn't safe. And so that inside direction develops a dichotomy of inside and outside. In this phase, there's just being from. And no fixation, no struggle. The end of the watcher and the beginning of beginning of life, really. And you understand the hardest of all acknowledgements at some point is to say to yourself, I am the truth. I am the way. Which is exactly what Christ said. Because that is the end of the journey. and the end of separation as we have known it. I am the truth, not small I. It's not a proclamation of arrogance. It's abiding. And there's no problem. There's no problem in the reemergence of all the difficulties because everything is the way. And everything is the truth. And so there's no reaction to anything because everything is the truth. And therefore, being lost in thought is, does not have a counterpart, which means I need to be aware. And therefore, the spiritual path ends. And that's the hardest, the hardest. I had a teacher, and I used to say something that was very inspired at one time. And he would say something, do you really know that? And I would fall right back onto my doubt and, and think, who am I to say that? Who am I? You see that? You see that? Where most of us would go, you see. And he would do it deliberately so that I would go to that place until I could stand up and say, I know that, without flinching an eye. Despite the doubt, in the doubt, abiding in the doubt, change nothing. I am the way. Without dispute. What does it look like 
for such a person. There's no marks. May we all pass quickly and deeply into ourselves. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? Can't you feel your heart come out? Can't you feel the source of the urgency? Why put a prolonged journey in this? For what I have been talking about is but a moment, but an instant of recognition. Thank you all. You've been a great group. All of us are so appreciative. I hope you feel it in yourself for each other and for your own work and endeavor. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.